Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church of Jefferson Hills. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by sharing and showing the love of Christ and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now, here is this week's message from Pastor Floyd Hughes. Uh, We're going to continue. We're actually going to end, finish our series walking through the book of Nahum. And if anyone is just joining us, we acknowledge that we have been talking about a very unpopular topic, right? It's not a topic where people are going to run to their friends and co-workers and say, hey, we were just talking about the fact how God is going to judge all humanity. That's probably not going to happen. But what is going to happen is God is going to judge all the nations of the world, and he is going to judge all humanity. Now, again, know this isn't one of people's favorite topics. Uh, It makes people uncomfortable. Um, But let me do this. Raise your hand if you like are one of the people, and if you are, God bless you, who enjoy going to your friends and family and saying, God is going to judge all of us. Anyone? No one gets a happy... God bless you, okay? Uh, But here's the reality, though. God is going to judge all the nations of the world. He is going to judge all humanity. And we don't just believe it because the word of God says so, although that should be reason enough. We believe it because there's evidence that shows us that the word of God is true. Now, let me do this. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. How many people know for a fact, like you don't just hope this is true, but you know for a fact that you know who is the first president of the United States. If you know who that is, just raise your hand. Hopefully everyone raises their hand. Otherwise, shame on our public school system. But yeah, okay, we all know who that is, right? And hopefully we all were thinking George Washington, right? Okay, there are a few other people who think there were 14 other presidents before George Washington. We're not talking about them this morning. It's a whole different conversation. Um, and I'm not making that up. There are people who think that. You can go Google. Don't, don't Google them because I don't want you to join their crazy. But <laughs> this is something we know because people have looked and found historical evidence and said, hey, here's who the first president was. Other people documented it. And so now we believe that to be true. And the same type of information exists for the Bible, specifically for the judgment that God said that he was going to bring on all nations and on humanity, and specifically the book of Nahum, who went to Nineveh, or didn't go to Nineveh, but prophesied against Nineveh that, hey, God is going to judge you for your sins, for your wickedness, for your evil. Now, if you want to follow along, I'm going to jump through a weird set of verses uh, back and forth through Nahum, but if you want to follow along, open your Bible to the book of Nahum, but I'm going to put a couple of verses up here on screen first, so we get an understanding that we're not just making this up, right? God is crystal clear about his judgment. Uh, So you could turn to the book of Nahum. There should be a Bible under your chair, left, right of you, on the table. If not, raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. Uh, But in Nahum chapter 2, this is what it says. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots and smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth, the voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. Now hear me. Again, Nahum writes this with that kind of poetic language, right? But there is a definite message, and you never want to be on the side of something where God says, I am against you, right? Not a good place to be, because he goes on and he says this in chapter 3. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. 
I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame, which is God's way of saying, I am going to humiliate you. And then he goes on and he says, I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt. I will make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? And then he says this, and this is, this is crucial. This goes along with that prophetic theme. He says, are you better than Thebes, situated on the Nile, with water around her? The river was her defense. The waters her wall. Cush in Egypt were her boundless strength. Put in Libya were among her allies. Now, for those of you who aren't aware of this, God had prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah that he was going to bring an end to this nation called Thebes. And God is saying to Nineveh, hey, you're no better than them because they had a river as their defense, they had walls, they had other nations as their allies, but look what still happened to them, and it's pretty devastating. Yet she, meaning Thebes, was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were dashed to pieces at every street corner. Lots were cast for her nobles, and all her great men were put in chains. And that may sound harsh, but again, you never, ever want to be on the opposite side of something where God says, I am against you, because when he brings it, he brings it full on, right? Now, again, God is going to judge not just their nation, but he's going to judge every nation of the world. And again, we don't just believe this because the Bible said so because we just read a few verses and people say none of those verses are true. We believe it because there's historical evidence that supports that. So I'm going to jump through a lot of verses. Again, you want to follow along uh, in your Bibles in the book of Nahum. And Nahum chapter 1, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, says the Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. And we talked about the fact that if you go on Ancestry.com, you're not going to see, hey, you're a defend descendant of the Ninevites. doesn't exist. There are other nations that were destroyed, no longer exist, but there are still people who are descendants from them. There are other tribes, no longer exist, but people are still descendants of them, Right? But for the Ninevites, for the Assyrian Empire, they will have no descendants. But this is the key. This is, this is what I want to show you. He says, I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. There was a, two guys named R. Campbell Thompson and R. W. Hutchinson. Uh, they did, as you see on the bottom, uh, a, they were part of the British Museum excavations on the temple of Ishtar. And every, I think it was semi-annually or annually, they would write about their findings. In one of those annals, what they're called, they wrote this, the statue of the goddess Ishtar lay headless in the debris of the ruins of Nineveh. And there are people who would say, that doesn't prove that God did it. Lots of temples were destroyed, but wait, there's more, right? In chapter 3, verse 3, it says this, charging Calvary, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over corpses. Again, this is that poetic language that Nahum used to prophesy what would happen to Nineveh. He said there would be so many bodies that people would be stumbling over them. 
And then hundreds of years later, and we talked about this guy last week, Diodorus Siculus, he wrote in his uh, book, the Bibliotheca Historica, which has nothing to do with the Bible. Bibliotheca is just Greek, meaning book, historica, history, so a book of history, that this is a Greek historian who wrote, and I want to say between 20 and 40, or 40 and 20 B.C., uh, it may have been 60 and 20 B.C., he wrote, in two battles fought on the plain, before the city, the rebels defeated the Assyrians. So great was the multitude of the slain that the flowing stream mingled with their blood changed the color for a considerable distance. And this is what he's saying. He's saying there was a stream, that there were so many dead bodies that the stream changed color. And when he says for a considerable distance, that's because miles and kilometers weren't invented yet. That's a euphemism for miles and miles, like a considerable distance, miles and miles. That's how many dead people there were. And people will say, anytime a nation's overthrown, there's dead people. That's just a coincidence. But wait, there's more. In verse number 2, chapter 13, this is what Nahum writes, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke. The sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. In chapter 3, again, there the fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. They will devour you like a swarm of locusts. Multiply like grasshoppers. Multiply like locusts. Over and over again, it talks about a fire, and it's not just a prophetic fire, um, because R. Campbell Thompson and R. W. Hutchinson wrote a book together called A Century of Exploration at Nineveh, and in their book, they write this, Archaeological Excavations at Nineveh. So this isn't what they heard. This is what they saw. Have revealed charred wood, charcoal, and ashes. There was no question about the burning of the temple and the main palace for a layer of ash about two inches thick lay clearly defined in places on the southeast side. Here's the other thing. Temples were not built of wood. Palaces were not built of wood. The walls, which they might have burned down, were not built of wood. Chariots were built of wood. Just like Nahum said, they were found burned, right? Here's, here's again, and this, this one uh, is, is probably the most specific of the prophecies that were found to be true. Um, look at your troops. They are all weaklings. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed the bars of your gates. Again, fire. Draw water for the siege, strengthen your defenses, work the clay, tread the martyr, repair the brickwork. So in addition to saying, here's what's going to happen, right? Fire, gates are going to be open, uh, and there's a, a specific um, archaeological event about what they found at the gates. I just didn't include that for the sake of time. But he also says this, which is kind of remarkable. He says, in order to defend yourself, this is Nahum saying that God told me to prophesy to you guys that in order to your, defend yourself, you're going to have to draw water for the siege. You're going to have to strengthen your defenses. You're going to have to work clay and martyr and repair the brickwork of the walls that have been knocked down, right, which is specific. And then there's a guy by the name of A.T. Olmsted who wrote a book called The History of Nineveh, and he says to the south of the gate, this was... 
and I apologize for not knowing the specifics. I looked at the date, but I didn't include it on here. It was either 1920s or 1950s. He wrote, to the south of the gate, the moat is still filled with fragments of stone and mud bricks from the walls heaped up when they were breached. Now, the walls had been there for hundreds of years, so that mud had already dried. This was the mud from after the walls were breached, just as Nahum said, they tried to rebuild the walls with bricks and mud and water to stop the defenses, and it didn't work, and the city fell. And here's the thing, again, people don't, I get this all the time when I talk to people about, you know, the historical evidence for God, and they say, that's made up, that's a lie, and I'm like, there have people who have gone there and seen these things and taken pictures of them and wrote books about them and not to defend Christianity. They're just saying, here's what happened in history. And people will still say, I refuse to believe it. That's okay. You don't have to believe me. But whether you believe me or not, God is going to judge all the nations of the world. God is going to judge all humanity. And again, we don't believe it just because the Bible says so. We believe it because there's historical evidence that backs it up. And it would kind of be insane to see all these historical things, to see someone go and investigate and write about, yes, this is how we know this is the first president of the United States, not the 14 other ones that the crazy people talk about, but George Washington, right? To say that and say, oh, well, here's the evidence they used to come to that conclusion. See the same evidence to come to these conclusions, but because it supports the Bible, say, well, I don't want to believe it. That is not reality. Reality would be saying, hey, because we've seen so many of these other prophecies come true, that we believe the remaining prophecies like this. In Psalm 9-7, where it says, the Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the people with equity. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Again, something else that Nahum said. He didn't just say God's going to judge people. He said that God is good and a refuge for those who need him and who seek him. And this, uh, Psalm 110, which says the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. And it sounds harsh, but like we talked about last week, it's not like he doesn't give people warning. Over and over and over, he says, this is what's going to happen. There are consequences for our actions, for those leaders in political positions, for those leaders who are kings of nations, for those leaders who are governments, uh, gover governors of, of, of states and leaders of people, there is a consequence for their action. God's not going to look at what political party they were in. He's going to look at, did you fulfill my will as you governed your people. Because, and so many people turn to this verse and it makes me upset because they don't read. This is why we read verses in context here. This is why we spend so much time going through the Bible. When you turn to the book of Romans, it says this, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, which is true. 
And when it says authorities, it's not talking about people. It's talking about those ruling positions of powers, those positions of a king, those positions of a queen, those positions of a tribal leader, governor, all of those positions where you're ruling over people were established established by God. And people will quote this, but miss the other, just a few verses down where it says, for the one, now he's talking about a person who steps into those positions of authority, they're God's servant for your good. They're there to do God's will. He says, yes, if you do wrong, be afraid, because those rulers don't bear the sword for nothing, but they're God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Not people who disagree with their political perspective, people who transgress God's justice, God's morality, and God's righteousness. And we talked about last week how uh, even uh, Solomon said, that we can't experience God's justice and humanity can't experience God's righteousness because humanity is corrupt. We're wicked and we're evil and we bring our own stuff to the table. So instead of enforcing God's will, we enforce our own, which is why God's going to hold those leaders and those people accountable. But he's also going to hold us accountable. And we're going to end with this verse. We've talked about it before. Here I put it up in the Amplified Version. Because it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, his majesty, and his splendor, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations. When it says all the nations, it's not just saying the ones that exist at that time. All the nations all the people. Jesus says that there are nations that will come and they will be so like upset Because there are people who had the word of God. There are people who had Jesus walk among them and they still didn't repent. And those other nations are like, well, if if Jesus would have come, we would have repented, but we didn't have that. All of the nations that have ever existed will be gathered before him and he will separate them, the people, from one another as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. And he's going to cause the sheep to stand at his right hand, but the goats he's going to put at his left. And he's going to say to those at his right hand, come you blessed of my father, you favored of God and appointed to eternal salvation, inherit and receive as your own the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And the Bible tells us that before the foundations of the earth were even laid, God knew who would choose him and People argue about this, no time to get into that. God knew who would choose him because he sits outside of time. He can see the beginning, the end of time, and everything in between. So he knew all of these people would choose him. And he said, because I know that you're going to choose me, I'm going to invite you to be a part of my kingdom, and you get to inherit and be a part of my family for all eternity. This was a decision that made before the earth was even created. God said, all of you guys, I want you to be mine. But at the same time, He's going to say to all the people on his left, be gone from me. No offense, not saying that to you guys. Be gone from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels because he is going to give them exactly what they want. All the people who said, I want nothing to do with God. All the people who even claimed, yes, I know God. I want to be like God. But then your actions and the way that you treated people, the way that you hated people because of the race or the way they dressed or maybe they didn't look like you or think like you or vote like you didn't really put Pray that you were really following God. God's going to say, I'm going to give you what you want, an eternity separated from me. And he says, then they will go away into eternal punishment, 
but those who are just and upright and right standing with God into eternal life. God's going to judge all of humanity. God is going to judge every single nation, but God also invites all humanity to be a part of his family for all eternity. And I hear people, and I have so many conversations where people say, well, it's not fair. Why does God judge this? Every single parent in the room has rules for their household, things you allow your children to do, things you allow your children not to do. Your children 100% do not agree with your rules. They come to abide by them because there are consequences for their actions. They may not agree that you say, well, you can't play, you know, video games all day. They may not agree that you say you only get some. They may not agree that you say you have to clean up your room because they're like, well, what are you here for then? You do it. They may not agree when they get older and you tell them you have to be in by a certain time because they think you're just being a stubborn parent and you know that you are concerned for their well-being because as all of our parents said, nothing good ever happens after midnight out there. And you're not trying to stop their fun. You're trying to keep them alive because you love them. And in the same way, people look at God and they, they get mad and they get angry and they say, I want nothing to do with a God who does this and a God who does that and a God who does this. And they're going to be extremely upset when they get the consequences of what their actions deserve. God giving them exactly what they want, eternal separation from him. But God doesn't mandate that that's where they have to stay. And he makes it easy for anyone who wants to be a part of his family. It's as easy as three things. I know a lot of people say you have to take a class, you have to do all this. You don't have to do all that. To become a Christ follower, to be a part of God's family, all you have to do is, one, understand that we're separated from God because of our sins, because of the way that we live our life, because of the things that we do. And it doesn't matter that people think that's unfair. It doesn't matter that people say, well, it's not fair. I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, but it's just like we're born with certain genetic diseases. We're born into sin, separated from God. There's a line that we can't cross to get to God because of our sin. So that's the first thing, acknowledging that that exists. The second thing is acknowledging that uh, the penalty for that sin, like we just said, eternal separation from God. Many people think uh, the wages, it says the wages of sin is death, and they think, oh, if I do something wrong, I'm going to die. No, that death means eternal separation from God. And the third thing is to realize that Jesus paid the penalty for that sin. He paid that wage. He paid that death. He took that separation from God, and because he was an eternal being, he could pay it for your great-great-great-great-grandparents, and your great-great-great-great-grandchildren and everyone who has ever existed and just saying, you know what? I believe that and I want to be a part of his family. So I'm going to accept what he did for me. And stepping across the line of faith means that we are now get to spend eternity with God. And I hear from people that say, well, how can you, uh, I forget the agnostics that say, well, how can you ever know for sure? And God tells us, because once you step across that line of faith, he says, I'm going to put in you my Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, so that there is no doubt in your mind that you are eternally mine, which is why I, I get people that try to show me evidence of how God doesn't exist. I'm like, I can't accept that because I have his Holy Spirit living in me. There's no way for me to deny that. 
And he offers that to every single person so that they don't have to experience judgment and separation from him. I'm going to ask you guys to stand. God, we thank you so much for, again, your love, your grace, and mercy. We thank you that you're a God who doesn't just judge us, but who warns us and gives us ample opportunity to accept your goodness, your grace, and forgiveness. We thank you that becoming a part of your kingdom is not about getting people into a building. It's not about, like, filling tithe coffers. It's not about increasing bank accounts. It's just about showing your love and your grace and your mercy to people who need to know that there is a God who loves them. God, we pray, we pray, we pray with everything we have that you would use us to help communicate that message to people in our homes, to people in our schools, to people in our families, to people in our circles of influence, to people in our communities. And we pray, we pray, we pray that you would help us do it in a respectful way that shows your goodness and your love and your grace. We are so thankful for the salvation that you freely give. And we are so grateful that you allow us to be a part of sharing that with others. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen, amen, amen. amen. Before we finish, uh, really quick, I wanted to share something with you guys. Because several weeks ago, I had you guys uh, fill out index cards about things that you think the church should be talking about more often. And Andrew, he called me up a couple of weeks ago. He's like, dude, when are we going to get to those? It's, it's, come on, it's been a while. So here's next week. We're going to kick off that summer series talking about uh, things that the church should be talking about. Normally, we go through books of the Bible during the summer, but we're going to spend this summer talking about that. Um, So I'm going to give you a little fair warning. Some of it is going to be talking about things that the church has gotten wrong, which some people may be upset about, but there are some things we've gotten wrong. We haven't done it right. Some of it is things that we've done well and we need to keep doing. Uh, And some of it is going to be things that people outside the church may not want to hear, but we need to talk about more. So I'll try to put out a list so you can pick. Yeah, I'm not coming that Sunday, but I'll be there for that. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to, you walk in and you'll be surprised. But uh, we're going to start that next week.